So welcome to Great Minds, the podcast. Today, we've got a terrific guest from, where are we right now, Lubomir? Are we in Paris? We're in Paris. We are in the wonderful city of Paris. And with me today is Lubomira Rocher. She is of French-Bulgarian origin. Uh, she has risen to the very top of our industry, uh, was just named the World Federation of Advertisers Global Marketer of the Year. And we'll come back to that, but that is an awfully big achievement. And she serves as the Chief Digital Officer for L'Oreal and is also a member of the group's executive committee. So welcome, Lubomira. Thanks for having me. So let's go back. You had a, a very strong academic background, uh, almost unusually strong for someone who ended up in our industry. Uh, and then you began your career working as a director of strategy and development for Cap Gemini, I guess about 20 some odd years ago. Tell us about that first day walking into the doors as a young 26-year-old. And do you remember anything at all from that very first day at work? Yeah, I remember very well. Um, it was, I mean, it was, it was very, I mean, all of this was very surprising to me because nothing had, you know, led me uh, to think that one day I would work in technology or even less in digital, or even less in beauty. So all of that was a series of, you know, encounters with people. And uh, and that particular one was, uh, I met um, I met one of the big, you know, Gadjanai chiefs in Brussels, who was a friend of mine. And uh, we had a good discussion. I was just finishing my studies. I was about to become a public servant for the European Commission. And he he said like why why don't you come and and work with me and for me, and I was like yeah but you know I know nothing about corporations about enterprises about technology, and he said yeah it's true you know nothing but you learn very fast. So this is how he convinced me, and and then I took the bet. And we're going to talk obviously about L'Oreal and about the the world of beauty. But your background, really, starting with Capgemini and then moving on to Microsoft, was very much around startups and technology. Yeah, it has really been uh, about technology and startups and innovation. I was teaching also a, a course in, 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 on innovation in my alma mater, and uh, yeah, that was and, and that was very surprising too because I'm an economist by by training. I did a lot of philosophy, of economics, of sociology, of uh, mathematics, statistics, and um, and yeah, it was it was it was interesting. It was interesting. And and Lubomiro, when you go back and you look at your sort of early influences, um, you talk about economics, you talk about philosophy, technology. Of course, it's a very wide skill set, and your academic training was very wide. Who were the early great minds that really influenced you? Did it start at home with your parents? Were there early mentors or professors? Who were those great minds? I would, I mean, many, I could, I could quote so many people uh, because I, I really think it takes a village to raise a kid. But I would say first, first and foremost, my mom. Uh, my mom who, is, who taught me, you know, we, 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 we've been immigrants, my, my mom and I, um, first generation immigrants. And we lived first in, uh, in, in Africa, in Morocco, in Algeria, and then in, in France. 
And then I, I went and, and lived in the U.S. and Belgium and, and had a pretty, you know, international career. But this experience of being an immigrant has really uh, printed uh, a lot of the values and who I am today. And, and my mom really taught me everything, everything about what it means uh, uh, to be resilient, uh, to be determined, to be humble. Uh, and to learn and to learn fast. So I think this passion, determination, and resilience is really what uh, uh, would build me uh, from from the ground up. And this is really my mom. And then maybe the second person or the second group of people I would I would quote was I mean, and this is how I ended up uh, working in internet technology and and, and digital is um, one of my you know first bo- boyfriend. Um, and and he was he was what we used to call a white hacker at the time. You know, it was the beginning of the internet. It was the BBS. It was the ICQ time, and a lot of guys were really passionate about about this new world. And um, this is how I got introduced uh, to the to the internet. And there is a lot of that philosophy of that utopia. Uh, that that stayed with me and that is still with me today. Now, when you started at Microsoft in 2008, the iPhone was about one year old. YouTube was about one year old. Uh, and uh, Facebook was a little baby. None of the things that we're talking about today in terms of AR and VR and AI, um, none of those subjects existed at all. Did you imagine then that technology would grow and that a company like L'Oreal, I'm sure in 2008, there was no chief digital officer. Uh, Did you see that? Did you see that coming or are you as surprised as anyone with where things have gone? I think it's it's both surprising and not surprising. What what was clear, and this is something I, I really got to learn early on, when I was a student at Berkeley at the time and, and, and really uh, having people the likes of Hal Varian or John Zeisman as teachers is really that at the time it was 2000, right? And at the time we were, we were trying to understand how the internet uh, would become a fourth or a fifth big, you know, industrial revolution and how mm-hmm. this, these pieces and these bits of technologies would change pretty much everything. And, and there was a debate. People were like, oh, yeah, but maybe it's a fad. Maybe it's something that will go go away. And maybe, you know, nobody will buy anything on, online, etc. So we had those debates. It, it's surrealist now, but it, it, it was really the, the debate we were having. And I was very convinced early on that the power of the of those technologies will change pretty much everything because it's not just the technology of communication. It's it's something that changed profoundly the way we communicate, the way we buy, the way we learn. I mean, the way we do pretty much everything. And this capacity of transformation that the internet had was something I really believed had on since day one. I mean, since the early stages. Um, and and so for me, when I was at, at Microsoft, I was starting to see like really the the imprint that these technologies were doing not only for the for the companies like helping productivity, you know, helping working collaboratively, etc. But it was really very evident that this would change the way people live, the way people interact and the way people do things in their real life. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I remember uh I'm fifty five years old and when I remember growing up that Sony was the Apple of its time. And they were viewed as such a progressive company. And in music in particular, 
there was a guy who ran Sony Music who was a big personality, a guy named Tommy Mottola. I think he was married to Mariah Carey, and now he's married to Thalia, a great singer. And I remember Tommy was very resistant to the movement to digital technology in audio and thought it was a fad. And, you know, the Sony Walkman, you know, in its day was, you know, that was before the you know, the, the iPhone, the, I, the iPod and all that. And they had that first mover advantage and failed because they didn't believe in technology. And I think the companies that have made that transformation have been the ones that have been successful. I think it's, there's really a difference between um, embracing change and technology in particular and resisting to change and to technology in particular. And I think, I mean, you know, a company like L'Oréal, for example, is, is very specific and, and, and very extraordinary in its capacity and its, um, its enthusiasm for change. Change is always seen as something possible. Change is always seen as an opportunity and something that will help us achieve even bigger things. So, so I mean, there is, and, and you know, when I was working at an agency called Valtec, we had many, many clients. And this is really at the end of the day what makes the big difference. The one who believes that change is a, is a problem and something that has to be resisted. Um, and the others who, who see it as, a, as an opportunity. And, and for L'Oreal, I know you joined them in about 2014. Have you, looking at your, you know, upper, uppermost senior management on the, at the board level, are they there with you? Are you having to push them to embrace technology? Uh, or are they, you know, challenging you to continue to embrace it and see how that can transform L'Oreal's business? I've always said that I was that I was and I am very very lucky because the whole work of evangelization, you know, this work where you know someone has to take the baton and say like, well, you know, technology is going to change everything. It is going to be a big thing for our industry. Let's change. Let's push forward. And this job had already been done by my CEO. So Jean-Paul Agon, our CEO, our chairman and, and chief executive officer, he was since 2010, really pushing the whole company, saying like this whole digital thing is not just a PR thing. It's something that is going to change profoundly our business model, our trading model, our marketing, the way we connect to consumers, and it's going to change everything. So this part of the job of a CBO was already done. So um, I never faced any form of resistance. I never faced any form of doubt. Um, you know, it was other challenges I faced, and many of them, but not this one. So I was doing a, a little bit of reading about you in the, the WFA award, and you were against some pretty, you know, world class marketers, folks like Sil Saller and Mark Pritchard and Fernando Machado, all of whom have been on our stages uh, many times. And I love the language in one of the articles where it talked about you designing a beauty tech blueprint. Tell us what a beauty tech blueprint looks like. Well, you know that's that's you know there, there are different phases in a, in a digital transformation, and with the, the little bit of perspective that I have now, I can I can elaborate on that. There's there's a first phase which is really about um, digitalizing your value chain, 
starting from research, how can you use digital technologies to uh, uh, inspire and guide your research into, you know, making uh, better products. Um, this is things like social listening. Today we are very good at spotting new trends, thanks to, you know, uh, having the pulse on the on the digital ecosystem and platforms. Uh, obviously, marketing is a big candidate for digitalization. It changed pretty much everything in terms of our marketing model from, uh, from our uh, strategies, uh, from moving to being an advertiser, to embracing content, uh, to embracing influencers, to embracing advocacy marketing, to embracing completely new forms of, of, of content, um, to sales. Um, today, uh, you know, uh, when I arrived in 2014, we were doing 3% of our revenue in e-commerce. Uh, last year it was 16. This year it will be uh, close to 20%. So it has grown very, very fast. So, so the first step is really to digitalize your value chain um, from research to supply chain and going through marketing, sales, communication, etc. But the second, the second phase is really about imagining new business models, new services, new ways of connecting with your consumers beyond products. Um, because our consumers, they want great products, but also they want great services. So in beauty, it's things like uh, virtual makeup try-on, virtual haircare try-on. It's about live streaming with a beauty advisor on, on, on in the shop. All those services, it's about booking, sampling. All those services, um, really our consumers are, are craving for them. And so this is really where we started asking ourselves, how is technology going to change our business model for us to embrace not only products, but also services and, and technologies. And this is how we created this concept of beauty tech. Um, and to be honest, it's also, you know, looking at other sectors, uh, if you see, if you think of, you know, people talk about food tech, people to talk about fintech, about tech, about medtech. And we were like, yeah, there's really an opportunity in beauty to marry the power of technology and the humanity and the community that comes with beauty and, and, and become like this hybrid of beauty tech. Fantastic. You know, it, it, it's a reminder hearing you talk of what an exciting time it is to be in our industry. And I know using, you know, uplifting words like that in the midst of, you know, the current global you know, crisis that we're all in. I mean, you're in your home, I'm in my home. Neither of us is in our office. Um, yeah. But but there's a lot to be optimistic about, you know, when you hear you talk with that passion and that knowledge and, and digital transformation. It's exciting. So let, let, me, let me ask you this. You said that your, um, from a sales vantage point, e-commerce is creeping up, I think from 16 projected to 20% this year. On the other side, in terms of marketing the L'Oreal brand, where is your mix now in terms of, let's call it traditional versus digital? And, and how is that marketing mix, uh, as you seek to connect with your customers worldwide, how is that continuing to change? Well, that's a very good question, and, and we have seen an, an, an amazing pace of change on, on this one. You know, L'Oréal being uh, one of the top five advertisers worldwide, the question is very, very critical and very central to our business model. So when I started, it was about 10% of our media uh, going uh, going to digital. Uh, to digital. Uh, now it's more than 50%, um, and it's really accelerating. Um, and 
so it's it's really about uh, having uh, having uh, digitalized our our media. It's also about having completely changed our content strategy. Uh, you know, before uh, when you were in uh, in uh, in FMCG, it was about you know when you were doing a big product launch. You know, you were doing a product launch, and then you had like a thirty second TVC, a fifteen second TVC, a great print execution, a, a point of sales execution, and job was done. Um, today, you still have to do that very well because those touch points remain important for our consumers. But then you have to embrace a lot more touch points. So think of, uh, of course, the six-second bumper for YouTube. Think of the animated GIFs for Facebook. Uh, think of the future for Snapchat. Think of, you know, the WeChat execution, the Timorization, you, you name it. So our our production has increase sometimes by hundreds of times uh, to be able to cater to all those new touch points with their different formats. You don't design a format for Facebook the way you design for YouTube. Uh, and, and, and with the level of personalization that is now expected from our, from our consumers, you will not address a mom in the same way that you would address a, um, a young millennial or Gen Z. So this has changed the whole center uh, and, and the central nerve of, of, of the, of the marketing of, of, of L'Oréal. And, and beyond media, which has profoundly changed, as I just said, there are other ways to connect now with, with our consumers that are not media driven, but it's content or the content we are producing for our own touch points. Think of our websites, think of our YouTube channel, our WeChat channels, our Facebook pages, our Instagram pages. All of that is new content we are producing. Sometimes we think of ourselves not only as a manufacturer, but as a publisher. We are, uh, we are publishing a lot of content. Uh, based on the interests of, of the, of the consumers. So that's content, but that's also influencers. Influencer marketing has gained a, a very, very strong importance in our, in our industry. And it's also about CRM, all those new touch points. And, and this has really changed the game. Yeah. I think the evolution of the content business in particular, um, is fascinating. Years ago, we had, uh, he's an actor and a filmmaker, real New York. Uh, character who's beloved, Ed Burns. He's married to Christy Turlington, the model. And uh, and it was part of a seminar we were doing with the Tribeca Film Festival. This must have been 10, 12 years ago at least. And he was talking about the democratization of technology and how the camera equipment, the editing software was good enough even then that anyone could go into a, a retail camera store, buy a video camera that was of sufficient quality, go out and buy the Apple product or the Adobe editing product. And for a couple thousand dollars, you could be in the movie business. And that was never possible before. And so you see the democratization of the content business now and how a brand like L'Oreal embraces that and produces your, almost your own Hollywood studio now. It's true, but it's not just us. It's even our consumers. And this is where the game becomes even more interesting. It's true that we have started to, uh, uh, to produce a lot of content for us, but it's true that we have seen an amazing 
amount of creativity coming from our consumers, from beauty influencers, big or small, you know. And yeah. thanks to the new technologies, those guys have been able to have a voice and to express completely different uh, approach to beauties. And, and, and this has been very, very interesting and it has really changed the industry from a more like, you know, sometimes top-down uh, version of beauty that was kind of, you know, told uh, uh, by big brands to really uh, completely different uh, conceptions, voices, uh, uh, approach, and, and diversity to beauty. And this is fascinating. Yeah, and I would think in your space, as much as any, the role of the influencers now has to be absolutely tremendous. It is, it is. And, and like with everything in, in the digital right now, it's interesting because it's, it's changing and evolving. Uh, three, four years ago, it was all about like those big influencers, right? The, the, the Kim Kardashians and, and, and all the others. Uh, with a lot of followers, a very, very big reach, very professional in the way that we're, that we're doing content and everything. Today, what we see is the rise of micro or even nano influencers, those very authentic, regular consumers uh, posting, telling stories, uh, producing content about our brands. And this has been absolutely uh, phenomenal to watch. Yeah, no, we had at Advertising Week LATAM in Mexico City a few weeks ago. It's sadly will be our last for a while. Um, we had an influencer on stage, Juan Pazarita, who is 25, 26 years old and has 23 million followers. And it was absolutely staggering to hear, you know, the reaction of our crowd and our delegates in LATAM to meeting someone like that in person. They're the new rock stars. They are new rock stars, but, uh, and again, they are absolutely new rock stars and, and they are really amazing in the, in the, in the way they handle, uh, their audience, uh, the way they, they think about the content, which is very different from the way we would think about content as a brand or as a marketer. But what is really fascinating is also this rise of like, you know, again, very regular people uh, who become advocates. If you think, you know, if we have we have a brand. I'm thinking about that example. The brand is La Roche Posay. La Roche Posay is a, is a brand uh, really uh, endorsed by dermatologists. It's a brand that is really catered for very sensitive skin. It's a it's a fantastic brand. And in that brand, there is a particular branch. Uh, which is called Lipican, which is all about the atopic skin. So skins that are very dry, very itchy, uh, and, and, and a lot of, of parents actually use that brand for the kids. And, uh, and, and we've created a, a whole community, a whole blog in some of our websites around that particular topic of atopy. And some of the moms, uh, usually moms, sometimes that, but it's usually moms. And, and the way they talk about their stories, their experience, their kids, uh, the way, you know, sometimes they are to say their nights and their, and, and their, and their lives has something so profoundly authentic and so profoundly true and sincere that it has really made a difference in, uh, in the prescription and recommendation for our brand. So it's, you know, it goes really beyond like the, the big star phenomenon to really go down to the personal stories, the very authentic and sincere stories of micro and nano influencers. Let's just set the size of your industry because the numbers are staggering. There's a projection that the global skincare market in 2021 will be about $135 billion. 
And the projection is that by 2024, it will go up to $863 billion. How could we be looking at so much growth and how much of that is fueled by the big brands, the successful brands like Lancome under your purview and the evolution of the smaller niche, natural, organic, similarly in the food industry, that's also made its way to the skincare industry. I mean, we're talking about incredible growth that's projected over the next four or five years. Well, it's true. I mean, the first thing we should we should say, I guess, by now is we must remain very humble uh, in front of what we're living uh, uh, to uh, really project uh, numbers for the future. What, what we know, what we know for sure is that skincare is part of a bigger trend, which is health. Uh, and skincare is really part of that uh, healthy living uh, that we see in many industries, from food, as you said, to fitness, to uh, mental wellness. And so skincare is really a uh, spot on in very, very big and profound cultural trends. That's that for sure. So we, we expect, uh, we expect it to, to continue to grow, uh, in what numbers? That's another question, but we, we're expecting it to, to grow. On your question about big, small, niche brands, I think it's a, it's, it's a very interesting question because what I think, uh, coming from where I'm coming is that digital has allowed uh, new brands to enter the market, and and this is this is very true. Uh, we've had a we've had a, a, a number of of small and some of those small brands be, are becoming big brands uh, that that reach the market, and this has allowed again something which I value so much, which is creativity, innovation, new ideas. And this has really uh, challenged and uh, and boosted the the beauty market in general. And this has done a lot of good for everyone, for incumbents as well as for new you know new startups, but also for consumers at the end of the day because they have benefited a lot from this innovation and creativity. What we see, what we see is um, is that it has uh, in a way never been easier to penetrate the market because now you don't need to have amazing amounts of money uh, to go for media. You don't need to have established distribution, you know, uh, within the, the existing channel you can go online. So that is very true. But what we see also is that when you have very big brands, uh, such as, you know, the, the Lancôme, as you mentioned, uh, which is the number one luxury uh, beauty brand, or the, or the L'Oréal Paris, which is the number one beauty brand, or the Maybelline, which is the number one makeup brand in the world, those brands... Um, when they understand the codes, the new game, the new creative game, the new marketing game, when they are able to reinvent themselves, learning from what is happening in the market, those brands uh, can have uh, a fantastic future too. And what we've seen in the past years is that we've had good results at lower level, but our billionaire brands have had even better results than our average growth at L'Oréal uh, total. So what it means is that there is uh, no premium, neither to big nor to small brands, but there is really a new way of doing marketing, a new way of addressing consumers, a new way of understanding the trends and translating them into products and experiences. Um, and when you get that, then you are successful. And this is really something that we have, sorry, we have insisted a lot, um, especially with my team, is this, um, is this mindset of not hacking, but I would say reverse engineering. It's something that we are monitoring a lot 
how algorithms are working on the platform, how YouTube is, is making uh, choices in terms of what the consumer see or doesn't see. So understanding and reverse engineering those algorithms starts to be an important part of the, of the job of a marketer today. Well, it's a great story. And, you know, what we see, we get to talk to an awful lot of people with advertising weeks all over the world and curating, you know, more than a thousand seminars a year. And the common thread for those companies that are successful, companies that have been around for a long time and companies that are relatively new is that the leadership embraces the world as it is and as it's going to be versus as it once was. And hearing you and watching L'Oreal, you know, act as a small entrepreneurial company, you know, being able to move quick, seizing opportunities, it's really, really quite inspiring. There is, there is one, um, you know, in L'Oreal we have a, it's, a, it's a very solid and it's a centennial culture, company culture. And there are some mentors that are very, very important. One of it is, uh, maybe one, the most important of it is saisir ce qui commence in French, which means something like seizing what is starting. And this really tells you, and this was our founder who, who really stated that, that sentence, who stayed with us forever. And there is really something very strong in that sentence, which is don't resist, embrace what is there, understand it first, go big about it, but really have this pulse on the ground, understand the consumers, understand the technologies, understand the change, and make something big out of it. Fantastic. Well, it's clear why you were the WFA Marketer of the Year. This has been an absolute joy uh, to talk to you. And, and one last question just to wrap up. You were kind enough to share some of the great minds who influenced you when you were first starting out. Looking today, both within L'Oreal and beyond, what are the great minds that influence you? And when you need a little, little bit of extra, extra energy, where do you look to and who to find that? Um, so I think for me, what is really, really important right now in, the, in, a, in a time where, I mean, the internet has changed profoundly you know, since its creation and, and what it is today. I think today's challenge is twofold. The first is that we avoid that technology uh, works for technology and that we forget humanity and that we forget communities and that we forget people. So we must make sure that it's very important that technology serves people and that technology serves beauty and beauty experience and consumers and company statement, but it is not a force driving for itself, right? So that's that's my first thing. Mm -hmm. And this and, 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 and on that and, and the second thing is really the notion of I would say sustainable and responsible development. Um so this is very true for companies. And we all know that, you know, chief sustainability officers, chief ethics officers have now been created in all, you know, most of the modern companies. But it's more than that. I think every department should be embracing sustainability and ethics and responsibility at its core mandate. And if we think about us as marketers or as digital leaders, I think that there are some very, very key questions that are ahead of us. So some of those questions are about sustainability, especially if you think about e-commerce 
and the and 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 all the the footprint, the carbon footprint that is derived from all our you know IT digital tech operations. That's one big issue. And the second one is ethics of algorithms and ethics of AI, which I think will be uh, is and will be a major, I would say, civilizational challenge that we need to address as L'Oréal, but also as a, as an industry with our partners. Um, and this is something that is very, very important to me. And just maybe to leave you with, a, because it's not exactly the answer to your question, but I, but I would I would say one one person who is really inspiring me a lot is Satya Nadella, uh, Satya, uh, the CEO for for Microsoft, who not only turned around the company, my who I, I know well, turned around a, a company that was very challenged. I mean, we I mean Microsoft missed uh, the internet, Microsoft missed the mobile phone. But Microsoft didn't miss uh, the whole cloud and AI and, and, and all those revolutions. And, and it's really becoming a, a force for the industry, again, after being a great, you know, a great company for many, many years. And it's, and it's also a force for good. Because what Satya really, uh, really did well is also the, the change uh, of culture within L'Oréal. Uh, and, and putting notion, uh, notions of, uh, you know, humility, learning, uh, growth, personal company growth, responsible growth at the heart of everything uh, that we're doing. So Satya, and obviously I cannot finish without quoting my own CEO, Jean-Paul Lagon, who's, uh, who's not only uh, been a visionary uh, in embracing this digital revolution, but not only, not only the digital revolution, the sustainability revolution, the ethical revolution, um, and also has been a great mentor and, support, and supporter of, of what we were doing. Fantastic. Well, this has been uh, just a joy to speak to you and uh, congratulations again on the WFA Market of the Year Award. Uh, Lubomira Roche is truly designing a blueprint for the future, not only for L'Oreal, but for our entire industry. And we look forward to seeing you on stage. I certainly hope you can join us in September in London at Advertising Week Europe. And we would be flattered and honored to have you on our stage anywhere in the world, anytime. It will be my privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. An original music was by Ian Levy.